It is critical that we recognize the great scope and tremendous emphasis the subject of resurrection has in the word of God. It is from the beginning to the end of the divine revelation of scripture. Since the fall, all things which are of God have their new beginning and vital value in and by the representative and inclusive resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now our host, Bill Petrie. It is important that we should recognize what a great scope and tremendous emphasis the subject of resurrection has in the Word of God. As a principle, it is a patent or latent according to the measure of our discernment from the beginning to the end of the divine revelation of Scripture. Since the fall, all things which are of God have their new beginning and vital value in and by the representative and inclusive resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Note how much is wrapped up with the divine attestation of sonship at the resurrection, not at his birth, not at his death, not at Bethlehem, nor at Golgotha, was such a specific attestation made, but it was reserved for resurrection. The scripture state declared to be marked out as the Son of God with or in power by the resurrection from the dead, according to Romans 1 4. Psalm 2 prefigures the counsel of malignity against the Lord's anointed. This counsel is put into action to its utmost limit. He is slain. The ultimate issue is the heritage of the nations. The immediate issue in resurrection is a decree in verse 7. Thou art my son. This day have I begotten you. He is the representative, firstborn from the dead of a specific and peculiar kind of sonship. To this very passage, the company of believers in the presence of a further council of malignity made their appeal in Acts chapter 4, verse 25, and received at once a further divine acknowledgement. The place was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and there were other triumphant issues. In like manner, an effectual testimony was born at Antioch of Pisidia, with this very passage at the center of the message in Acts 13, verse 33. It clearly relating the divine pronouncement to the resurrection. Then again, this particular transcendence of Christ's sonship above angels and all else has this very passage quoted as its basis in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 5. This is related to the inclusive dominion in the universe of the race in Christ 
and also to the dethronement of the Lord of death, according to Hebrews chapter 2 and verses 5 through 15. All of this signifies where the finger of God makes its emphatic seal and how God is jealous for a testimony to the resurrection of Christ. So we can draw attention to a very vital principle in Christian experience is coming out of the divine truth. Have you ever noticed that even that which has its origin in God, which comes forth from God, which is brought about by a supernatural act of God, must pass into death in order that by resurrection it may have its supreme divine seal and attestation. The Old Testament is full of types of this truth. I want you to reflect upon Isaac for a moment, who was brought into this world by a miracle. There was no natural ground upon which to account for him. All one need do is read Romans 4 verse 19 to see this. Yet he must die. And as it is said of Abraham's body, he was as good as dead when the knife was lifted. But for all time, resurrection is the point of divine emphasis in this story, especially in the vindication of Abraham's faith. Does not Hebrews 11 state that Abraham believed that God could raise Isaac from the dead to fulfill his promises to him? Isaac was a type of Christ. And as we have said, although Christ was a miracle in his birth and truly the Son of God incarnate, yet the death prepares the way for superlative testimony from heaven. Without tracing this principle, so far as the word is concerned, let us note its application and experience as to ourselves. We are new creatures of God, and our sons in the Son by right of our being made anew. But how true it is, that the course of our spiritual life seems to consist of deeper and ever deeper identification into his death. His death. In order that more and more of the power of his resurrection may be known by us and manifested in us. There seem to be cycles or tides of death and life. And while each cycle or tide appears to compass our end more completely or to leave us at a lower ebb than ever, there comes with ever increasing fullness an uprising of spiritual life and knowledge and power. Thus, while death destroys the old man, we live increasingly by that life, the new man, which is not human, but divine, and upon which 
and upon which alone the seal of God rests. This is a deliberate course which God takes with us. We can see it further in service and work. Is it not true that most, if not all, of the pieces of work raised up by God to fulfill some ministry in his Eonian purpose have first had every evidence of being God-breathed, but later have gone down into a time of deep and awful death, seeming disintegration, breakup, loss, until it seemed that nothing would remain? Sometimes this has been by persecution or massacre. Sometimes by a series of what we humanly call catastrophes, tragedies, misfortunes. Sometimes the causes are not apparent. They are inside, like some evil thing sapping the very vitals. Sometimes again, it is in an explicable arrest and pressure, a paralysis and a deadlock, and it is difficult to know whether it is from within or from without. All we know is that death reigns or appears to do so. Place this rule alongside of some of the great missions for work abroad or at home and see how it applies. What is true in the greater is also true in the smaller. A local fellowship, a Sunday school class, or some other piece of work. Provided always that the initiation of the work was of him, that we were put into it by him, and that has been kept on such lines as are consistent with his mind and purpose. Such an experience of death is not an argument that the Lord is not in it, but may be regarded as evidence of his concern to put the work ever more fully where his highest attestation can be given. The principle holds good in the matter of received truth. The Lord may reveal to us truth which is of great importance and which is intended to be tremendously fruitful in life and ministry. It comes with the power of a revelation, and for a while we rejoice in its light, talk about nothing else, and find that it works. Then something happens, whatever that may be. The result is that we go down into death with and because of that truth. For time, it seems to have lost its potency, and all hope that we shall be saved is abandoned. This is what Paul means in Corinthians when he says, in deaths oft. We wonder if we shall ever be able honestly to believe that truth again, let alone preach it. But at length, by a touch of life which leaves us as those who dream, just see Psalm 126.1. And despite all our past fears, that very truth now becomes our chief emphasis. 
That's the testing mode. Bringing us down. Beating us down. Putting us to trial. Giving us a chance to make that new truth a reality in our lives. And when those things that have tried to beat you down, to put you down, to bring you into that death state, the doctrine holds true and you emerge stronger, a better Christian, more experienced than you ever did before. That's the resurrection phase. The Lord is making his ministry a power to others, which is quite new. And previously, in, in other eons, not made known as it is now revealed to us through the pen of the Apostle Paul. And in all this, Jesus Christ seems to get more for himself by resurrection than he did by birth. This may seem largely a great secret, but it is evident and it is true. There are other directions in which this applies, one of which we might mention, it is that of relationships. How frequently have we come up against this perplexing experience between those related, sometimes in the deepest bonds, for some reason, often quite without any natural ground, there has come the severest strain. It appears that the old ground of fellowship is entirely breaking down and being lost. It may be by reason of some spiritual crisis in the life of one of those affected, some call to service or to go a little further with the Lord, or some test of faith or loyalty to God. Whatever may be the cause, seen or unseen, such inexperience is not uncommon. The first issue is an end of the kind of level of fellowship that has been. It would sometimes appear that the whole thing has broken down and is gone permanently. At such a time, serious questionings arise as to the apparent antagonism between a conceived idea of what God requires and what looks manifestly to the plain duty to others. This is a bitter and harrowing time to the soul life. The ultimate issue, if there has been a definite willingness to suffer the loss of all for his sake and holding on to God through blindly and with much weakness is that the whole thing is brought back again, but not the same. That which you sow, you sow not the body that shall be. 1 Corinthians 15.37 states, It is the same, yet different. It is on a higher plane, a purer, holier, stronger, deeper thing, and capable of much greater spiritual fruitfulness. In a word, in the grave it has shed much of the human, and, and in the resurrection it has become 
more divine. The elements which are temporal and natural have been supplanted by more of the spiritual and Ionian. Having given this space to stating and illustrating a fact in an abiding law, we must now say something about the nature of resurrection. What is resurrection? It is the power of ascendancy over death. What is the central factor in resurrection? It is a life which cannot know death, a life which is indestructible. Such is the nature of the resurrection to which we are giving our attention. There is a resurrection which is but the reanimation of the body for time or for judgment. That is not our subject. We are speaking of the resurrection of Christ and our incorporation therein too. By being made new, we become partakers of the life of God. That which the scripture calls Ionian life is the unique possession of the body of Christ. No man has it apart from Jesus Christ's work at Golgotha, and in particular, because of his resurrection. The whole course of true spiritual experience is for the increase and development of that life. And this particularly takes place, as we have seen, through crisis and cycles of death and resurrection. What is the Lord's supreme aim with his children? It is undoubtedly to get them to live by his life only. To this end, he will more and more take away their own life. As the time of the church's translation becomes imminent, this truth will have an increasing emphasis so that to live victoriously at all or to work effectively, there will need to be a greater drawing upon the Lord of his life. When the, when the holy ones, the saints, are translated that they shall not see death. And when that great shout of victory over death and the grave goes up, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 54 and 55, it will not be by some outside external operation of divine power alone, but it will be the triumph of the resurrection life of Jesus Christ within the body of Christ, expressing itself in that final glorious consummation of a process of ascendancy which has been going on since the time when that life was received at, at our being made a new creation by faith in the risen Lord. This is what Romans 8 calls the conforming process. 
This is the most important truth to recognize, for it explains everything. Why must we know weakness, impotence, worthlessness, nothingness on the side of our natural life? Emphatically, that his strength may be made perfect or be perfected in weakness. And what is his strength? The exceeding greatness of his power to usward, who believe according to that working of the strength of his might, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Ephesians 1 verses 19 and 20 tells us, it is resurrection might and life. The more spiritual a believer becomes, the more that believer will realize their dependency upon the life of God for all things. This will be true physically as in every other way. The central truth of a divine healing, which is in truth of God into spiritual purpose, is described in Romans 8.11. It is in energizing of the mortal body with resurrection life. This does not of necessity inevitably or invariably carry with it any physical healing. But it does mean such a quickening is to make for a transcendence of the weakness or infirmity which prevents a fulfillment of the will of God in life or service. I can tell you, when I dealt with physical illness, and I was sick with cancer, and I was brought low to the point of death. This resurrection power filled me, did not heal me physically. I was still sick to the point of death, but it allowed me to overcome the infirmity so that I could carry out the divine service that God wanted me to do. An atmosphere charged with the life of God is always a place of renewal, refreshing, and strengthening to him. And that is spiritual. And the spiritual allows us to transcend over the death state. If Enoch was a type of the believers who will be translated that they shall not see death, then we must remember that it was by faith that Enoch was translated. What is the nature of this faith? It is the faith which depends upon divine life for all things and is therefore an abiding witness and testimony to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Hence, as the Lord's coming draws near, we shall be forced to live exclusively by his life, the life whereby Jesus conquered death. This is the life which has brought triumph to God's people through the eons. A close study of the Old Testament will reveal that it was faith in resurrection, in resurrection life, which brought the divine vindication. 
that they might obtain a better resurrection was the motive which made them victorious in death and therefore over the authority of death. The ascendancy of spirit, so markedly characteristic of New Testament believers, is to be accounted for on the ground of a life within their spirit, which could not see death. The life of him who dies no more. Death no more he has dominion over him. For it was impossible that he should be holden of death. Now, it is important to remember that death is not only a law or a principle. It is that. But the scriptures consistently make clear that behind the thing, there is a person. Back of death is he that had the power of death. That is the adversary. The great battle which took place at the exodus of Israel from Egypt was really a battle between Yahweh and all the gods of Egypt, according to Exodus 12.12. Those very gods of Egypt were but the spiritual hierarchy of him who had ever made it his aim to be like the Most High and he had assumed the role of the God of this world. A right understanding of that story would make very clear that it was a conflict between the Lord of life and the Lord of death, and that the Hebrews were only translated out of the kingdom of darkness and the authority of death because a lamb had shed its blood, and through death, had figuratively destroyed him that had the power of death. This was completed and fulfilled at Golgotha. For on the cross, Jesus Christ drew on himself the whole hierarchy of evil and went down under it to the bottommost reach of its domain and then by reason of the life which could not be held by death, he stripped off principalities and powers, broke through, and rose their conqueror. It was in resurrection, far above all rule and authority, that he became the firstborn from the dead. The first and inclusive one of all who should be identified with him. So far as we are concerned, the power of Satan can only be so destroyed as we, through death, know Christ in the power of his resurrection, receiving his risen life more and more. In conclusion, let us point out that after his resurrection, our Lord was, because of the peculiar nature of his resurrection state, no longer subject to natural limitations. Time and space now had no control of him. This principle abides, and it applies now. 
When there is a living in the values and energy of resurrection life, we are children of the eons and of the universe. Prayer touches the ends of the earth, and the significance of our being and doing is of universal and Ionian dimensions. There are no limitations. So then, beloved of God, the natural life is no longer a criterion. Whether it be strong or weak matters not. Its strength does not mean effectiveness in spiritual things. Whether that strength be intellectual, moral, social, or physical, its weakness does not carry a handicap. We are called to live and serve only his life, which is the only efficient and sure one. What is true of the head must be true of the members. What is true of the vine must be true of the branches. What is true of the last Adam must be true of every member of Adam's race. Planted together in the likeness of his resurrection, said the apostle in Romans 6, 5. And he prayed that it might be more and more experiential, that I may know him and the power of of his resurrection, he states in Philippians 3.10. That should be the prayer of every true spirit-led servant of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Good day and God bless. We want to thank you for listening to this week's Differing Things podcast. If you would like to get more information about the Bible, please check out our website, www.beacon-ministries.org. Do not forget to join us next week for a new Differing Things podcast.